When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. The nest was empty. Frederick said it would be, but Martha had to see for herself. She hooked her arm around the oak's thick trunk and peered down through the few remaining leaves, finally spotting Frederick's blonde head several branches below. Commotion on the ground caught her attention, and she scanned the crowd of roaming classmates, narrowing her eyes at her older sister Clara. Too bad the acorns have all dropped, Martha thought with a smile, as tossing one at her sister would be great fun. She raised her head and looked towards the mine. The tipple, twice the height of the towering oak, was easy to spot. She couldn't see the gangway, but she could hear the buggy's wheels grinding on the iron rails and the mule's sharp brace as they made their way in and out of the mine. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and today I'm talking to C.K. McDonough, also known as Karen Neuer, about her debut novel, a family saga entitled Stoking Hope. Set in southwest Pennsylvania in the early 1900s, this novel tells the story of a pregnant young woman who's banished by her father and sent to a home for unwed mothers. After her daughter Frances is born, Martha vows to protect her, and when she's taken away, Martha marries her lecherous widowed boss in order to get her daughter back. As the century passes, Martha and her daughter Frances face challenges and lose loved ones, but along the way, they find family, friendships, and enduring hope. Hi, Karen. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, hello, Galit. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here and get a chance to talk about my book. So how did you come to write Stoking Hope? Well, I've I've always been um, kind of a writer. I um, was in advertising and writing press releases and um, video scripts, but writing a novel just always interests me. And I do love history. I, I kind of call myself a history nerd. So the chance to kind of take history and turn it into um, a novel just was always in the back of my mind. So I decided I would give it a shot. How did you choose the time? How did you choose to begin in Pennsylvania and then have the action move to West Virginia? Walk us through that. Well, some of that is based on my life. I, I am a, uh, a Pennsylvania native, a, a little town called Uniontown, not far from Pittsburgh. And my grandfather, who I never knew, was a coal miner. So my grandmother and my mother talked a lot about their experiences in the little coal towns in southwestern Pennsylvania. They referred to them as coal patches. So that's how uh, so Stoking Hope begins, is actually in a little coal patch. And I researched and went and visited several little coal towns, actually went in a uh, a working mine so I could really get the feel of what coal mining was like. And and it was a a difficult life, but what really amazed me is how my mother and grandmother had such fond memories 
of what I now realize was a very difficult life. The uh, the sense of community in these coal patches, how they supported each other. Um, many of them were from were immigrants. They were from different countries. Some of them didn't even speak English, but they all they somehow did seem to get along, and then passed on their different their different traditions and foods to each other. So I just found that interesting. And, and then the reason I moved the, uh, the story along to Wheeling, West Virginia, is I myself moved to Wheeling, West Virginia, and served on a, the board of the Crittenton um, home. Oh. So I've got very interested in, the, in how the uh, Crittenton homes across the country, they were homes for unwed mothers in the, in the 1800s, which was something very novel at the time. And, and that's how I got interested in it and found out that it was founded by a woman named um, Kate Waller Barrett, just a, a fascinating woman far ahead of her time. So I, I couldn't let that go. Right. Okay. So in this day and age, it's hard to imagine a father banishing a pregnant daughter and never wanting to see her again. <laughs> Can you say more about the world Martha comes from? Well, that's what I really, I'm so glad that you got that from the book because I wanted to get that across that things really have changed. I mean, there's still much, much that we can do and many changes that we can can make for equality. But back then in Martha's time, like I said, at the turn of the 20th century, when you became pregnant, you were unmarried, there were very few options for you. And it was, it was very common that the father especially would just banish the daughter and have pretty much just erase her from the lives of, uh, of the family. So I wanted to get that across and show that it has changed. And uh, there is even a line in the book that um, one character wonders if the stigma of, of, of unwed mothers, if it would ever go away. And I, I'm glad to point out that really that stigma no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Well, in some communities it might still exist, but not in general, not in right. America, right? Let's discuss how Martha never forgets her first love. Yes, her first love that she knew from a from a childhood sweetheart, um, Frederick. And unfortunately, uh, Frederick passes away in World War One. But Martha just um, never forgets him. She moves on, obviously. But um, she always refers to Frederick as her first love, and that does continue to play out through the entire story that, um, that Frederick is always in the back of her mind. Yeah. So when Martha gets to meet the founder of um, the Crittenden, home, Crittenden Homes, who you just mentioned, Dr. Barrett, um, you were actually speaking about a real person. Right. And you have experience with it. Do those still exist, those homes? Or what happened to them after uh, homes for unwed mothers? Do they still exist? Oh, they do. They do. Uh, there's now the, the it's, they've evolved into the Crittenton Foundation. And they are still, there's many of them still in the, uh, in the states. There's one in Wheeling. They, they still are, most of them are gender-based, so they mostly do serve women. And, and many of the women are um, pregnant or parenting, but they also have expanded into helping women that with addiction problems or mm. just um, 
come from a, a family life that they need a change. Often the Crittenden homes now is the last step before many of these young women are incarcerated. So it does um, oh. offer them a chance to learn. And it was, um, I was on this board for a 10 years, um, kept renewing and was president of the board because I was so fascinated and, and proud of what, what we could do in helping these women that they came from homes, broken homes, just I won't get into some of the um, very sad stories that they just didn't have much of a chance. And at Crittenton, we're teaching them things like how to, to cook, um, just how to, a checkbook. They had no idea how to do anything with money. Um, mm. So there are still some around and, um, and they've just, they have evolved, which I think is, is great. In Martha's time, it was very Christian based and it was very highly disciplined. Is it still like that? Not so much. Um, there is discipline. You do have to have that, and, and they are expected to follow the rules, but they work within what the rules today are. The rules back okay. in Martha's time were a little different and, and obviously much stricter. But back in Martha's time, one thing that I was fascinated or surprised to learn is that the women could stay with their babies for up to three years at a Crittenton home. They weren't mm, immediately, which, yeah. you know, they give birth and then just thrown out. They could actually stay there for three years. And these women obviously had no money to pay. Some of their families, maybe a wealthier family could pay the Crittenden homes, but they were all, um, basically it was a, a service that was offered to them at no charge. So they really were, like I said, a great option for the women back then. They sometimes would even go into prisons and take the women out of the prison that um, they were pregnant and take them to a Crittenton home so that they didn't have to give birth and, and try to be a parent in a jail. So they, they really were something that was missing in life back then that people just didn't want to talk about. And I think it's still um, today, still a problem, you, you know, you're right. You're right. It is, especially like you said, in, in the smaller towns and in um, certain segments of society. But um I just, I just, I was just really proud of being a part of uh, yeah. the chain. Uh, Martha says she's naming her daughter Frances after the writer. Is she referring to the author of one of my favorite books, The Sacred Garden? Yes, yes, that is true. Frances Hodgson's Burnett. Um, one of my, it's a, you know, a child, children's book, and I just really liked it. I any chance I get to kind of uh, toss in a, a children's book or one of my favorite books into Stoking Hope, I, I do that. Um, Peter Rabbit makes an appearance in the, in the book, so I, I do like doing that because childhood books played such a role in my life. Um, it's probably why I wanted to be a, a writer because I loved reading. And it was my grandmother, the grandmother that um, was raised in the, the coal patches of, of southwestern Pennsylvania is the one that encouraged me to read. Um, when we would go to the grocery store together, I would wander off and sit where the, the books were. And that's where I would spend my time when my mom and grandmother went around shopping and then I'd pick out a little book. And of course, it wouldn't be finished by the time they were they were through shopping. So grandma would always end up buying me those books. It was always the, the little golden books. I'm sure many mm -hmm. people remember those. And so that's how I ended up with my collection of little golden books. You still have them? I do. <laughs> wow. Oh, if only I had been so prescient. Um, 
let's talk about the Pickett family, unless it's Pickett. They're only one of those is what we would call a mensch. I want to know which one was the most fun for you to write? Well, you know, <laughs> I shouldn't admit it, but writing the the uh, not-so-nice characters is actually kind of fun. You, mm. um, you get to kind of go outside of your comfort zone and, um, and write. So I would say, geez, I don't know. I would think writing Russell was the was fun because he then he had kind of his counterpart, his brother, um, that was more or less the the good picket. So I really enjoyed kind of writing off the two of those. And and Martha even says in the book, wondering how on earth two people from the same family with the same parents could be so different. And I know I've wondered that myself. And um, you know, and I'm sure anybody that has a sibling has wondered that. <laughs> Right. Well, the father is a piece of work, but so is the mother. <laughs> well, in different ways. Yes, that's true. Not not really a nice family, but if somehow or another, some good came out of that. Uh, that not so nice family, and you know, I'm sure there's still many of the people around like that. But the, you know, the the different classes back in the uh, the early. Um, 20th century, it it was very much that um, people that did have something very much kind of looked down on those that didn't. And um, I'm hoping that that's changing. Really? Is it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did say I'm hoping. Uh, (laughs) Right. (laughs) Me too. Um, So they weren't the only icky characters in the book. Patrick Boyle is kind of evil. Oh. Why, why does he settle for all the terrible things he could do? Why does he settle just for putting Francis in a convent school? I, you know, I, the, I, I just wanted to get the, um, the conference school, the, the convent school and monastery in there. And when I read stories about it, that that actually did happen, that uh, a mother could lose their child because somebody accused them of not being a good mother or not raising them in the, um, the, the way that they should be. Uh, it kind of amazed me that that could be done. So that's why I, I took Patrick there is um, to really point out that women, especially a single mother, had very little power back then. Um, the legal system, they, they were just beginning to have juvenile courts, which was another thing that, um, that Dr. Kate Waller Barrett was also a proponent of, is the juvenile court system. And she put under that umbrella the court system also for women, something that just it really was not there before. So I, I wish I could have included more history on that and how the courts have changed to uh, to help women and how that has evolved and in, in helping women and children. So that's why Patrick um, kind of came in there and, and um, became the bad guy so that I could get that part of the uh, the history out there. Mm-hmm. So just as Martha remembers her childhood friend, Francis, uh, has a very close childhood friend who she remembers most of the time fondly. Can you say something about him? 
Mickey. Well, Mickey is the son of of one of the other women that um, Martha met at the Crittenden home. Their their children were born close together. They ended up getting apartments in the same building. So Frances, for the first six years of her life, was raised pretty much as as Mickey, almost as a sibling. So they were very close. Um, And that was... um, one of the things I, I liked watching um, Francis grow up with that. And then unfortunately, Mickey does betray her later on, but it was, it was hard then after Francis moved in with the Pickett family and was giving, given all of these, um, you know, a step up in life that then it was hard for her to identify with Mickey. And I, and I think that does happen today still, even when, when people change or move into a, a different place, how their childhood friends and people they thought were going to be friends forever, that it uh, they just can't make it through that. Yeah. So big question. Why does Martha stay so long in her abusive, loveless marriage with George? Well, the, the main reason is she had no other options. You know, what what would she do? And she knew that Francis was um, was a very bright child and um, wanted to make sure that that future was intact for Francis, that she could get the education that she herself was never offered. Um, so I, I believe mostly she stayed in. Well, I wouldn't say mostly. I would say the only reason she stayed in it was really for her daughter. Yeah, but then... It was no longer the case. And then she had no place to go. There was really nothing else for her to do. No, even Frances begged her mother to leave George. But as um, Martha said, where would she go? Um, there just was not not many options for women, that, especially if you were divorced. Um, actually, if you were even when you're married, you weren't able to work. You weren't allowed to work. So she couldn't just go off and work. If she um, left George, her only option really would be just to kind of disappear and to leave. And and George really did not want her, didn't want to divorce her because of his image. One of the things I really liked about your novel was all the social issues you snuck in while I was enjoying <laughs> the, the story. And then I realized, wait, this is a real issue. Um, okay, so here's one. Joe changes Francis's life for the better, and she loves him. But because of him, because of being married, she can't finish college. Can you address that situation? When were married women and mothers finally permitted to go to college? Well, I'm not sure exactly what year it was, but when I was doing research on, um, she went to uh, Margaret Morrison Carnegie College, which is now Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Um, And I actually went and talked to a graduate, a 1942 graduate of that college. And you were not allowed, if you were married, you couldn't be in college. Um, I'm not sure exactly when that changed. That's something I'm going to have to look up. But um, I was shocked when I learned that. You know, I just Mm -hmm. kind of assumed that, you know, there were women colleges, so you could go to college no matter what. But that was just not the case. And again, something that surprised me when I I did this research, um, there was quite a few surprises that things that I didn't know and things that we kind of just take for granted that – that there has been some progress. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, here's another issue. Joe, who's just a wonderful guy, goes to fight in World War II and comes back almost a completely different person. Can you address that? Yes, that um, that I, I did not. That was not something that I kind of outlined or attend, intended. It was after um, talking to some other veterans and, and just how war you can't go through war and not be changed. It's just, um, just can't be. And even though World War One or World War Two, the veterans came back to a, a big welcome and, you know, great victory and slapped on the back. And most of them went on to, um, to have very successful lives. There was always something in the back of their heads. Um, even I know my father was a World War Two veteran. And he, he very seldom talked about the war, He uh, especially not with me. With my brother, he has told me he did talk to him a little bit more. But it's interesting, my father was in the infantry, so he was on the ground. Uh, but my uncle was a pilot in World War II, and he talked, uh, he talked a lot <laughs> about um, being a pilot. But he was not on the ground. He didn't see the carnage. The only time he told me, I didn't get the chance to interview my uncle before he passed, is that when after the war and they were trolling, which he said that, that was um, flying very close um, to the ground so that you could actually see what was going on on the ground. And he couldn't believe flying over Berlin that what it looked like. And that's mm-hmm. when he said it kind of hit him, the uh, the destruction of war. So when Joe came back, I... Um, you know, I wanted to show that that it was almost like a getting to know a new person for Francis and um, and how yeah. they worked to get through it and um, and learn to love each other as they were after the war. Mm. Another real person, a very important one in the book, um, portrayed as Francis's college friend is Stephanie Kowalik. She was the actual chemist, right? Um, yes worked for DuPont. And can you say more about her and how you came to include her in the novel? Well, Stephanie was one of those characters that I came across, but not a character, one of those people I came across doing research. And especially when I was looking at Margaret Morrison Carnegie College and sending my character Francis there. And that's when I came across Stephanie Kowalik, who graduated from there in 1942 and then went on to invent Kevlar. She uh, she took a job out of college at DuPont, and she claims, she says, probably the only reason that she got the job is that there weren't enough men around, because they were all in World War II, to, um, in chemistry, to do what DuPont wanted to do, is they were working on synthetic fibers. They had had a big success with nylon, and they wanted to repeat that success with um, something that they could put in tires. Their goal was to actually make tires last longer because rubber was a problem during World War II because most of rubber came from the um, plantations in Japan. So we can no longer get rubber and we were running short of, uh, of it in the, during the war. So that's what DuPont's goal was to make a synthetic fiber that would uh, make tires last longer. So that's what Stephanie worked on and took her many, many years. And then eventually they came across um, Kevlar. And um, and that's what she's basically, she is known for. And we all know the Kevlar has gone on to become used for bulletproof fabric. So it's hard to even 
imagine how many lives have been saved by uh, Stephanie's invention. Wow. It was really, I didn't read anything before I started the book. So I didn't know that was going to happen. It was a big surprise. It was a fun surprise. Anyway. So what are you working on next? Well, I I am working on actually a historical mystery. It's a working title of a better life and it will be a dual timeline. Um, So we're going to have some things happening today with a, uh, a Pennsylvania state police detective, a, a woman. So, of course, there's going to be some conflicts just because she is a, a woman in a, a male-dominated um, department. And then also, then we go back in the timeline to the 1930s of um, basically the murder victim and her life and how she emigrated from Wales. And um, she was one, she was a, Ended up becoming a very wealthy lady with, um, but a hoarder. She ended up with uh, quite a few dogs and ends up murdered. So I think I think it'll be interesting. I'm interested. I love murder mysteries. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Karen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for joining me again. This is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with C.K. McDonough about her debut novel, Stoking Hope. Thanks for listening, and may you always be immersed in a juicy novel. Happy reading, everyone.